Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Good evening, children of the night. Come on into the cabin. It's been awfully muggy here in the Shenandoah. Come on in. Get comfortable. Have something cool to drink. Get situated, because it's time again to talk about money. No, I'm not going to beg you for money this time, or ask Tony to do it. In fact, it's more of a notice of a change that is right around the corner. Since the District of Wonder's first episode in late 2007... They've been completely advertisement-free. At the behest of our primary financial benefactor, that is changing. We'll talk about that benefactor in just a moment. But one, the one-off donations to the old PayPal tip jar, or the funds drummed up during our semi-biannual pledge drive, or even our still-growing Patreon following, we still nearly shut the whole thing down about six months ago. You might remember that. Part of our recent move of hosts for our episodes was to reduce operational costs, and the other part was to position ourselves in a way that we could court sponsors. About that financial benefactor, even though we've had some folks over the years give some pretty healthy one-off donations, this fellow has footed the lion's share of the bills from the birth of the district to the birth of Tales to Terrify even to this day. I haven't gotten permission from him to lift the curtain on his identity, but I think I'll do it all the same. His name is Tony C. Smith. Yes, that's right, the host of Starship Sofa and the mayor of the District of Wonders, and sometimes he's funded the network's hosting costs, as I understand, and at what I would call a detriment to his own household. What does this mean for you, listener? Well, nothing much. The host we're with, should we find a sponsor, inserts advertisements at the beginning and the end of each episode and with one in the middle. 
You may have noticed that we've had a bit of run of shows featuring one single, longer story, and that was done to give us some breathing room to get comfortable for setting up shows for the if and when we get some sponsors. How we'll handle those going forward, we're still sorting out. Deciding if we should just find a natural pause and a long story's plot to market as the point to inject that advertisement, or if we should just run really long shows from time to time. Stay tuned for how that shakes out, or if you've got some thoughts about it, feel free to post to the show's Facebook page. The only folks that are really going to notice a change are those brave souls plowing through our dozens or hundreds of hours of back episodes. They've been successfully migrated to the new host as part of this as well, and frankly we don't have an efficient way to mark where the advertisements are going to go in more than 250 episodes. When are these advertisements going to start? Well, they could be this very episode, so if you heard an advertisement just before my voice, that's that's it. Or it could be months from now. I just didn't want you to be caught off guard by that listener. But let's get to our fiction. Our first story of the night comes to us from Spencer Carvalho. Spencer provided us with a rather humble and simple bio, and that is Spencer has written short stories for various literary magazines and anthologies. To read more of his stories, simple Google his name. I've done a step better and put a link to his Goodreads authors page in the show notes for you to give him a look over. I also noticed that he lives somewhere in Ohio, my home state. The story of his that we're about to hear has been published quite a few times in the Barcelona Review, Litterbox Magazine, Ken Again, Inner Sins, Fever Dreams, Ezine, Allegory, and Romance Magazine. It also has appeared in two anthologies, Fossil Lake and One Spitten. And now, Spencer Carvalho's Revolver Concert. A long line of people wait outside the concert hall, hoping not to die tonight. Lucy Cooper stands huddled close to her fiancé, James. She inhales cold air and exhales steam. Further up the line, closer to the concert hall entrance, she can see the marquee lights, showing the words, David Wilde, and below that, in smaller letters, Revolver Concert, Tonight Only. Closer to the entrance is a reporter and cameraman interviewing people. Between her and the reporter is a man in a black security jacket, wearing a headset and holding a clipboard, talking to the people in line. Lucy is unable to hear him. James looks to Lucy and says, Don't worry, we'll be in soon. The man in the black security jacket finishes talking. He moves down the line to where Lucy can hear him. All right, the show is going to be starting soon, so I'm going to explain a few things and then get you guys inside as soon as possible. The crowd cheers. The security guard continues. For most of you, this is probably your first revolver concert. What you're going to do is, once they let you inside, you're going to proceed to the security checkpoint. There, they're going to check your ID to make sure you're at least 18. Then you're going to sign the life waiver and then they'll let you into the main hall. Any questions? No one says anything. All right, good. 
He moves forty feet further down the line and starts talking to them. Lucy looks to James and asks, Life waiver? Yeah, here's just some legal thing so no one goes to jail. I'm not sure what's going on here. The guy and the girl in line in front of them turn round. The guy has his arm wrapped around her shoulder. The girl looks at Lucy and says with a smile, I've been to a revolver concert before. You want to hear about it? Yeah, sure. Oh, so okay. My name's Joan. My boyfriend's Ted. Hey, says Ted. Hi, says Lucy. So, before the show starts, Joan continues, this guy in a black suit comes out carrying an old wooden table about two feet wide and places it by the microphone stand. Then he opens the drawer of the table and removes a revolver. She smiles upon saying the word revolver. He places the revolver on the table, closes the drawer and just walks away. Then later, David Wilde comes out. And at random points during the show, he fires the gun into the audience. So, at every show, six people die? asks Lucy. Oh, it's not always six, Ted says. Sometimes a bullet goes through someone and he gets more than six. And sometimes people only get wounded. He laughs and then says, and this one time, Justin Carter, the leader of that boy band Back Degrees, went to a show and David Wilde comes out, sees him and just shoots the guy six times. It was great. Lucy looks to James and asks, So we could die tonight? He smiles and says, Babe, it's like a six in ten thousand chance. Joan chimes in. Hey, I look at it like fate. If it happens, then it's meant to be. Lucy ignores her comments and asks, Six in ten thousand? But there's still a chance we could die. James smiles and says, Sometimes you have to take chances in life. Lucy looks down and starts pondering this idea in silence when the line begins moving forward. Finally, James says, as he cranes his neck upward. The line moves quickly as people start filling the concert hall. As soon as Lucy enters the two large double doors to the building, the heat hits her. They continue to the security barrier. She hands a security guard her ID, which he swipes through a machine. A green light flashes and she's allowed to pass to the next station. James passes under a metal detector and she follows. Then they approach a security desk. Joan and Ted quickly sign the forms on the table and then pass through. Lucy and James both approach the table. He quickly signs his form while she starts reading hers. Um, excuse me? she asks one of the guards. What is it? a guard behind the desk asks. What does this mean when it says the participant forfeits his or her life for the duration of the concert? It's just legal stuff. Yeah, but what does it mean? 
James looks from the guard to Lucy and says, Just sign it, OK? She looks at him for a few seconds and then places the waiver on the table, picks up a pen and signs her name. The red ink disturbs her. She puts down the pen and James grabs her hand as they move past the security barrier. She looks around at the various concession stands and merchandise booths. She sees Joan and Ted looking at shirts and posters. Behind her, she hears someone talking really loudly and turns to see the cameraman and reporter from outside, now inside, interviewing people. James also turns around to watch them. A young, smiling girl wearing a David Wilde shirt says to the camera, He's just so handsome. He's really great. Yes, but what about the fact that he kills people at all his shows? asks the reporter. Well, it's kind of like a spiritual experience because it's like all this life all around you and when someone in the audience dies, well, it's like like their life leaves their body and like spreads out into the other people in the crowd. It's really amazing. What do you say to the people that say David Wilde is only doing this because he can? That he's using his celebrity status to legally kill people? Well, they don't understand him the way I do. He wouldn't do that. A guy wearing another David Wilde shirt walking by stops and yells at the camera, David Wilde rules! The reporter quickly moves from the girl to the new guy. Excuse me? But why are you a fan? Because he rocks. Are you worried about getting shot tonight? No way. My friend Jimmy, who's like really good at math, told me that like David Wilde usually shoots people towards the front. So like if you're in the back, then you're fine. And there's less than one percent chance of being shot. I'm in the very last row. Lucy looks to James and says, We have seats up the front. Of course, I'm not going to a David Wilde show to sit at the back. Besides, the seats up front are cheaper. James, I'm not so sure about this. But babe, we've been through this already. If we're going to spend the rest of our lives together, we need to share our interests. You'll see, you'll love the concert. He looks away from her and to all the different people moving around the crowd. Lucy looks back at the reporter, who is talking to another person. The reporter asks the new guy, What's your name and what is your favourite David Wilde song? My name is Jean and I love the song Troit. And and why is that? Um, Well, because I've got my own band called Violent Thunder and I'm the guitarist. So I like Troit because it's the ultimate guitar song. The reporter looks at the camera and says, For those viewers at home who don't know, Troit is an entirely instrumental song. It's supposed to be the hardest electrical guitar song in the world. In fact, David Wilde has said that the first person to be able to play it properly will get a million dollars. The reporter looks from the camera to Jean. And how are you at the song? Well... I can play it, but it takes me too long. 
The song is three minutes, so to get the money, you have to play the song in three minutes or less. I'm down to 27 minutes, so I'm getting there. The reporter looks back at the camera. A testament to how fast David Wilde truly is. An announcement blares over the loudspeakers. You may enter the main hall now. The show will begin shortly. The reporter continues. And I'll take that as my cue. From KIS News, this is Bonnie Benatar reporting. And we are out, says the cameraman. Lucy looks at James. Come on, he says, as he pulls her with him into the main hall. They get to their seats very close to the stage. She looks around frantically as all the other seats eventually get filled. A man in a black suit appears on stage carrying an old wooden table. Upon his sight the crowd begins cheering. The man is wearing white gloves that match his white hair. He places the table by the microphone stand. He opens a drawer and removes an object which he places on the table. The crowd cheers again. Lucy is unable to see it, but knows that it is the revolver. He then closes the drawer and walks off stage. The stage lights dim, and out walks David Wilde. The audience screams with joy at the sight of him. His long hair partially obscures his face. He has an electric guitar with a strap around his neck and is holding an acoustic guitar in his right hand. He places the acoustic guitar against the old wooden table and adjusts the strap of his electric guitar. The crowd continues their cheering. He carefully looks out at them. His eyes scan over the different people ready for his music. His eyes lock with Lucy's, and he smiles. Then he leans towards the microphone and says, Let's start this show with a bang! And quickly picks up the revolver and fires out into the crowd. Now, who's ready for some music? The crowd cheers. David Wilde gives the greatest musical performance Lucy Cooper has ever ever seen. The sad songs make people openly weep. The uplifting songs make Lucy feel as if she's riding a roller coaster. He switches from electric to acoustic guitar depending on the song. One song, called Different Ways, is first played electrically and then acoustically. Lucy loves it each time and has trouble deciding which one is better. Despite her enjoyment, she's distracted by trying to keep track of the number of times David Wilde shoots out into the audience during the show. When he plays Try It, she sees hands move faster than she thought was possible. When the song finishes, she stands up and cheers. He looks across the audience, and his eyes linger on Lucy as he says, One more song! crowd collectively says, Aww! He plays the song, Farewell. When he finishes, the entire audience gives him a standing ovation. Lucy stands with the crowd. He removes his guitar and places it by the old wooden table. That was amazing, says James. As the applause continues, 
David Wilde locks eyes with Lucy and maintains the gaze until the applause dies down. She is mesmerised by him. The applause eventually stops completely, with David Wilde still standing by the old wooden table. The crowd just stares at him, expecting something to happen. He just stands there, quietly staring at her. Lucy hears a guy behind her say, Weird. I only counted five. David Wilde picks up the revolver, points it in her direction, and fires. James's entire chest seems to explode as the bullet hits him. The crowd starts cheering again. Lucy hovers over James' bleeding body. The concert hall starts emptying. She yells for help as the people leave. Most of them ignore her. Some take pictures with their cell phones. No one helps her. The concert hall empties, except for Lucy and James. James, I'll go get help, OK? OK? James! His eyes are lifeless. A strange smile is permanently left on his face. From behind her, a voice says, Miss? She turns around and sees the man in the black suit with white gloves. Very softly and calmly, he says, Here. He hands her a red rose and says, David Wilde was wondering if you would perhaps like to accompany him on a date tonight. That was Spencer Carvalho's Revolver Concert as Red by Margaret Essex. Margaret Essex lives on the beautiful far south coast of New South Wales, Australia, with her long-suffering husband, a happy hound, and the cat who rules. She spends time gardening, seed-saving, cheese-making, making music, and loves to be at a table of food and wine with friends and family. Thank you, Margaret. Our second story for the evening comes from Ben PNR. Ben was born in South Africa and moved to Australia in 2000, where he lives and most importantly writes his days away. He also works two jobs to finance his crippling addiction to coffee and spends his free time reading until his eyes hurt. After countless submissions, he has so far had 14 stories published, including Beyond, Dreamer, Fair Trade, and Spider-Men. The rest of his stories can be found on freenightmares.me. Link will be in the show notes. His dream is to one day make grown men shiver with fear and traumatize small children. He writes obsessively in the hopes that if he can only pass his nightmares on to others, they might leave him alone. And now, Ben Pianar's Till Death. On the night of June 12th, 2011, at 3 in the morning, can... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Pennington Graveyard was dead quiet, which was, of course, not unusual. At this particular witching hour, however, there was something different. Beneath a grave marked Harvey Cole, roughly seven feet below the damp layer of soil and grass, a corpse rolled over. He rattled in discomfort and woke up to find himself, for the first and only time, in a coffin. If he could have opened his eyes any wider, he would have, but, as it happened, his eyelids had already rotted away, and so, for that matter, had his eyeballs. How was it, he wondered, that he could see, if he had no eyes? As he probed his sockets with a bony hand, it also occurred to him that he had almost no brain left either and no tendons in the arm that he was moving about so easily. He clacked his teeth, the closest to disbelieving laughter he could do without vocal cords. Not all was gone to the worms, however, though what was left was feeding plenty of them now. Without nerves, he shouldn't have been able to feel that horrible, tickling sensation all over his remaining flesh, but... He did. He decided it wasn't entirely uncomfortable, if repulsive. He lay back in his coffin and marveled at his situation for a minute. He was never a religious man, so the absence of heaven or hell did not surprise him. This was something entirely unexpected. He wasn't sure whether to feel relieved disgusted or horrified. So instead, he marveled. There were some things he could do and some he could not. He could not breathe or blink or feel very much. But when he pushed up against the lid of his coffin, he felt it give just a little. And that was something he could never have done in his peak of health. There was, after all, six feet of dirt pressing down on it. He was strangely content for a while to lay there in the cramped dark and think. 
Inevitably, his thoughts turned to his life and his death. That was an unpleasant business, mostly because it had been so slow. Lung cancer, he'd discovered, was like that. It took its time. Or it would have, if he hadn't hurried it on its way. First with one last pack of cigarettes, and then with the forty-five that had made quitting so much easier. His wife had made it easier, too. She'd been good to him, he thought, and would have smiled if he had any lips left. And that promise of hers? That had really meant something. Somehow the knowledge that she would one day come to rest in the coffin beside his was infinitely comforting. Selena, he whispered to himself, although it sounded more like twigs in a fire than words. He turned to look at the wood beside him and almost swore he could see through it to her coffin that must surely be there just a few feet away. She must be dead by now. It felt like so long since he'd seen her. Then something else occurred to him. What if she was waking up beside him at that very moment? He had to know. If they were given the chance to live again, even for one night... He couldn't rest now. No, not until he found out the truth. He braced his arms against the lid of his coffin and began to press. He had little meat left in his arms, and not much of that was muscle, but somehow he felt the pressure rising in his bones. The force grew and grew until at last the dusty wood broke into splinters and the earth came crashing down to fill the space. He moved quickly, without thinking, and managed to fight his way into a vertical position before the dirt settled around him and pressed inwards. He felt stuck for a moment, but didn't panic. Harvey Cole didn't panic. Harvey Cole did what had to be done, even if that meant putting a bullet in his head. It wasn't as if he could die anyway. He moved slowly. Inch by inch he wiggled out of space and then dug into it. His bones cut through the loose dirt more easily than a full body ever could have. It was almost cleansing and he let it fall into his mouth and skull and ribcage wiping the worms and spiders from him as he climbed up and up. He kept his right arm as high above his head as he could, and eventually it grabbed left and right and found nothing but air. He angled his wrist and felt grass. After that, it was easy. Wiggle, pull, change position, repeat. When he got his right elbow all the way up, he hauled himself the rest of the way, and the soil fell from him in great clods and pebbles. He looked up at the moon for the first time in many years. He would have taken a deep breath of fresh air, but he couldn't. He felt it instead. 
a soft breeze drifting over his bones. He looked around the graveyard, nodding in approval. It was Cannington, just where he'd told her to put him. He looked down at his grave and read the inscription. Harvey Cole, it said. Taken too soon. He clucked his laughter again. That was for sure, he thought. But then he turned to the plot next to him, and his laughter died away. That name was wrong. It said Andrew Clement. And the other side? Martina Weston. None of the surrounding graves were Selena's either. She wasn't here or anywhere near. She wasn't in the graveyard. At first, he was furious. Beyond furious, even. How could she betray him like that? What had happened? Had she forgotten? Had she found another man? That last thought was too much. But he shook it off before it got a hold of him. She wasn't dead. That was all. She was still alive, somewhere. He'd woken up too soon, and she was still alive. That hardly seemed fair, though. How long was he going to be like this? He deserved some time with her. At the very least, he should remind her. That thought of her finding another man had sparked an idea in him that he didn't much like at all. Worse, though, was another feeling, just as strong, that she was breaking a promise. Or maybe she wasn't yet. But she was going to. She wanted to. That, surely, was what had woken him. Oh, yes, Harvey, she told him. Of course I'll do it. We'll spend forever together. And I'll never take another man. How could I? I only love you. And she'd said it so honestly, so lovingly. That decided it. If she really meant what she said, then what harm could it do to find her? So what if he was a bit dirty and rotted? He wouldn't make her kiss him or anything. Well, maybe just once. He only wanted to see her again, have one more night, remind her who she was in love with, who she'd made her promises to. Besides, it was only a twenty-minute walk away. Harvey wasn't a stupid man. You couldn't be stupid to own a business. To do that, you had to be smart, and you had to do what had to be done, no matter what. So he was careful when he left the graveyard, and he made sure he kept to the shadows, and that there was no one else around. It was very late, he thought, or very early. Even at midnight, you'd usually see cars in the streets here, but now they were empty. He could hear the sounds of cars rushing down the highway, but that was far away. He hurried across the street and stopped in the shadows as soon as he passed the first streetlight. He hesitated, almost automatically, as if he thought he'd have to catch his breath. 
but of course he didn't. Not breathing, he decided, was infinitely better than breathing. Especially when you spent the last ten years of your life with lungs like Swiss cheese. He checked left and right, up and down, and then he was off again. This time he didn't hold back at all. He slowed down a little when his right leg began to emit an unsettling clicking noise from the knee. But otherwise, he kept up the pace. He arrived at the old house in ten minutes without breaking a sweat. He could get used to this. There were no lights on in the house, but he knew she was home. He couldn't reasonably expect her to keep living here, yet she did. He was sure of it. He went all the way up to the front door, more to get out of the open than anything. The old house was big. When they'd got it, they'd been planning for a family. But when that fell through, they still hadn't sold it. They liked it too much, with its cozy kitchen and old musty rooms. Harvey chuckled to himself, resting his bony fingers on the front doorknob. Of course, it would be locked, but if he knew Selina, that wouldn't be a problem. Sure enough, he found the spare key hidden under a rock in a nearby pot plant. As soon as he entered, he knew there was something wrong. He couldn't quite put his finger on it at first, but by the time he was halfway up the stairs, he had it figured out. There was an odd smell in the air. It didn't smell like her, and it wasn't a house smell either. It was a human smell. A man smell. He growled under his breath. It couldn't be, surely. She'd promised him. She'd looked into his eyes and loved him and promised him. He quickened his pace as he made his way down the long hallway to the bedroom at the end. And her grave, he wondered as he went. What was going to happen to that once she had some new man on her arm? A new husband, perhaps. Would she forget her promise then? She'd forgotten one. Why not another? You don't know for sure yet, a voice said in the back of his mind. But a moment later, he did. Harvey pushed open the door to the bedroom, and there she was. And there he was, too. Whoever he was. They were fast asleep. It was much easier to move quietly, he'd discovered, when you were nothing more than bones and flapping skin. Aside from the quiet click of bone on wood, he was a ghost. He didn't waste any more time, though. That was not his way. Harvey Cole did what had to be done. And tonight, that meant making his dear wife keep her promise. Well, the promise she could still keep, anyway. So he crept over to the sleeping man. He let his left hand hover over the man's mouth for a moment. And then 
he pushed his fingers smoothly down his throat. Immediately, the esophagus closed around his hand reflexively, and the man's eyes opened wide. Harvey pushed on, using the same strange force that had helped him open his coffin. And soon enough, his elbow was digging into the roof of the man's mouth. The man emitted sickening choking sounds, and both hands grabbed his arm. For a horrible second, Harvey thought the man might break him, but the bone held, and soon his grip weakened. Harvey looked into his eyes. He must think he's having the most terrible dream. In any case, it didn't last long. Harvey knew when it was over, because who knew death better than someone who'd experienced it firsthand? He withdrew his arm from the man's throat with a long sucking sound and shook some of the saliva from it. He clicked over to the other side of the bed where Selina Cole was still asleep. He watched her for a minute and would have sighed if he had any breath to sigh with. The moonlight streamed onto the bed from the window, silhouetting his skeletal form onto her. She rolled over onto her side and breathed deeply. Harvey bent over and kissed her, old teeth against warm lips, and she wrinkled her face at the touch. It wasn't that that woke her, though. It was the smell. She inhaled just as he was drawing away, and a moment later her eyes flew open. She saw him and opened her mouth to scream, but at first no sound came out. Harvey felt sad to see such horror in her eyes when she'd once loved him so much, but there was nothing to be done about it. It was time to make her keep her promises. Harvey swept his wife into his arms just like the hero would sweep up the heroine in the final scene of a movie, only he held on a bit tighter. She did scream then, but only briefly. He sprinted down the stairs and out of the front door with breathtaking speed. By the time she'd regained her voice, he was halfway back to the graveyard. The lights on some of the houses went on as they passed, but no one came outside. If they had, they'd have been too late anyway. When her breath ran out, she tried to struggle in earnest, but it was like trying to pry prison bars apart with bare hands. Selena, he said, and this time he thought it almost came out sounding like a word. Tears were streaming down her face, that was all right. She should suffer a little bit after what she did. He took her up into the graveyard, and the moment she caught sight of the familiar iron gates, she started to struggle again. He almost lost control of her then, but regained it soon enough. And then she was held even tighter, her arms pressed to her sides. 
and then at last they were at his grave. This part he hadn't completely thought out, but he saw the solution soon enough. It was a nasty solution, that was for sure. But then again, Harvey Cole did what had to be done. He dropped her on her back, and before she could recover her breath, he grabbed a foot with each hand and twisted. He'd never have been able to snap them if he'd been alive, but in death, he had that strange power, and now she was really screaming. He put a finger up to his teeth to shush her, and was pleased when she promptly passed out. He set to work then, digging through the damp soil until he made it all the way down to his coffin. He didn't make a proper hole, but he pushed just enough dirt aside to make an easy path all the way down. When he emerged from the narrow crevasse, he had to look for her. She'd managed to crawl quite a distance. Not all the way up to the iron gates, but close. He picked her up and took her back to their grave. She was already weak with fear and pain by then, and when he laid her down on the grass, she passed out again. While she lay beside him, he used his fingers to carve letters into the gravestone. It was very hard work, and he wore both his index and ring fingers all the way to the second knuckle before he was done. He took a moment to step back and look at his work. She woke again and rolled over. That was when she caught sight of the gravestone, and at last he saw recognition cross her face. Harvey? She looked up at him, fresh tears in her eyes. She didn't believe anything that was happening now, he realized, except for the pain. She was living the worst nightmare of her life. You made a promise, he said. It sounded like nothing human to him, but her eyes widened as if she'd understood. No, she said hoarse from screaming, but it did no good, and neither did the screams that followed. As they descended to their final resting place, they disturbed the dirt so that it came down after them in an avalanche. Harvey held her tightly and brought her all the way down into the coffin. It was a tight squeeze, but he was made only of bone, and she was thin. So in the end, they fit. Her screams were silenced soon enough by the falling dirt, and both of them were crushed closer together by the weight of it. He hugged her closer, feeling warm and satisfied. She would keep her promise, he thought. He'd done what he had to. And at last, she was his, forever and ever. He relaxed his tired bones and went to sleep beside her. After a time, the dirt above them stopped crumbling down, leaving a steep ditch at the top, but filling it for the most part. 
The gravestone at its head read Harvey Cole, taken too soon. And underneath that, in untidy letters, Selena Cole, loving wife. That was Ben Pianar's Till Death, as read by Drew Sebastini. You haven't experienced true horror until you've weathered a winter in the bleak, frozen wastes of the Canadian prairies, and Drew has survived quite a few. He's been spinning tales since he was old enough to hold a pencil. Most often, Drew flexes his creative muscles as an advertising copywriter and creative director. He hopes you won't hold that against him. But in his spare time, he moonlights as a voiceover artist for radio and video commercial work. Drew lives in Saskatoon, Canada, with his wife, son, and a menagerie of furry creatures. Thank you, Drew. And that will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Our show was produced by our editors, Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music by David Raiklin. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.